Good afternoon and welcome. Um, my name is Sasha Rosenil and I'm UCL's Pro Provost Equity and Inclusion and Dean of the Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences. And it's my great pleasure to be your host today for this panel discussion, More Than the Right to Vote, Feminism and Citizenship. I get to do some really interesting things in my job, um, but one of the most entertaining so far has been spending some time with Hope the Lego Suffragette down in the UCL Student Centre earlier this week, having my photo taken and looking at the exhibitions about feminist campaigns over the decades from UCL Library's special collections that are gathered around Hope. For the next three weeks until the 7th of March, the day before International Women's Day, the UCL Student Centre is hosting Hope, a life-sized Lego figure of a suffragette. Hope was built from 32,327 individual Lego bricks and she's an amazing creation. I do recommend you go along to the student centre to have a look if you can and perhaps take a selfie with her. Hope came into being, I can't quite bring myself to say it was born, in 2018, um, which was the 100th anniversary of the 1918 Representation of the People Act which widened suffrage by granting the vote to women over the age of 30 who met a property qualification. That was at the same time as giving the vote to all men with or without property aged over 21. Hope will be on tour around the UK for the 10 years between that anniversary and the 2028 centenary of the, 20, of the 1928 representation of the People Equal Franchise Act, which finally gave equal voting rights to all women and men over the age of 21 in the UK removing the profoundly discriminatory property qualification and the different voting ages for women and men. Hope is being loaned to organisations around the UK to generate debate and facilitate discussions about women's equality. During her time at UCL, through a series of activities and the hashtag Stand With Hope campaign, we're aiming to inspire reflection on the history of the suffrage movement, as well as creating a space for conversations and hearing untold stories about gender inequality at UCL and beyond. So Hope represents the long struggle for women's suffrage, which was finally won on equal terms in 1928. But I want to draw attention at the outset to the fact that Hope has been created and named a suffragette, not a suffragist. The suffragettes were the more radical campaigners for votes for women, members of the Women's Social and Political Union, which was a women-only organisation founded by Emmeline Pankhurst, and which engaged in direct action and civil disobedience. The term was originally coined as a term of abuse by a journalist in the Daily Mail, a diminutive of the word suffragist, which was in common use at the time. But feminist activists embraced the label rather as lesbians, gay men and trans people chose in the 1990s to take up the abusive word queer and make it their own. The winning of the right to vote was the result of decades long campaign involving a wide range of actions from those undertaken by suffragists, more moderate uh, suffragists, uh, writing pamphlets, gathering names on petitions, um, holding thousands of local meetings all over the country, through public street protests in the form of march and rallies, to more militant tactics that included women chaining themselves to railings, committing criminal damage to shops and letterboxes, and attempting to storm parliament. Over the years, suffragettes were regularly imprisoned and many went on hunger strike and were sometimes violently force fed. It was a hard struggle that often involved considerable suffering. Yet it was a struggle that was built on hope, a positive, forward-looking emotional commitment, a belief in the possibility of full membership of society for women, a belief in the possibility of creating a better, more equal world in which women would be able to realise their talents and live their lives autonomously according to their own determination in which women would be able to shape the future of society according to their own priorities and values. But the right to vote didn't grant women fully equal access to political decision-making to shape the world as they might wish. And women remain very significantly underrepresented in politics around the world, despite significant changes over recent decades. There are currently 220 women MPs in the House of Commons, 34%, uh, and that's an all time high. In the House of Lords, the second chamber, women are 28% of members. Numbers are higher in the devolved assemblies, up to 47% in the Welsh Parliament, 36% in Scotland and Northern Ireland, and about 36% of local authority councillors in England are women. So we're still a long way from parity in political citizenship for women. But political citizenship is only one dimension of citizenship. 
in research that I carried out with a group of feminist scholars from around Europe, uh, the FEMSIT project, Feminism and Citizenship project, we argued for an understanding of citizenship as a multidimensional, encompassing not just the terrain of politics, but also including economic, social, intimate, sexual, reproductive, religious and cultural dimensions of citizenship. In this, we were building on the insights and arguments of second wave feminism that understood the personal as political and that brought issues of embodiment, reproduction, sexuality and intimate relationships and their gendered inequalities to the fore. We were also always concerned to pay attention to differences between women within the category of woman and to the multiple ways in which women are marginalized and minoritized by race, ethnicity and religion through the ways they live their gender and sexual identities and their intimate lives. So building on these new ways of thinking about citizenship beyond just the sphere of the political, this panel is bringing together colleagues from different parts of UCL, from different disciplinary backgrounds, to think together about feminism and citizenship, and to reflect on the unfinished business of securing full membership of society and its institutions for all women. Our speakers today are, first of all, Professor Anne Phoenix, uh, Professor of Psychosocial Studies in the Social Research Institute in the UCL Institute of Education. Then we'll hear from Professor Joyce Harper, Director of Education in the UCL Institute for Women's Health. And then from Dick Victoria Shaumni, Associate Professor in the Education Practice and Society Department in the UCL Institute of Education. You might also have come to hear Dr. Sylvia Suto. Um, unfortunately, or I can't say unfortunately because it's really good news, she's just had a baby um, and so she can't be with us here today, um, but um, I'm sure she's here with us in spirit and she said she would listen to the recording later on. So I'm going to hand over now um, to each of the speakers in turn uh, to hear from them about Standing With Hope, um, about the unfinished business of securing citizenship for all women, um, to talk from their own experience and their own research um, about uh, about this moment of, of rethinking um, citizenship and suffrage through these, this amazing Lego suffragette. Um, Anne, over to you. Um, Anne, you're muted. Okay, thank you very much. That was a lovely introduction, Sasha. And one of the things that um, it really helps us to understand is that there, there were such differences between women, even at the point of claiming citizenship through the vote, whether they were suffragettes or suffragists, and that women had to struggle and continue to struggle. And one of the things that you also made clear was that of course, when the vote was granted, it differentiated women further. So one of the things I want to talk about is intersectionality, a term that was only coined in 1989, but it has certainly been relevant and the work around thinking intersectionally has been common for a very long time. Because what it does is to point to the fact that in the categories that we all belong to, that we're all differentiated within the same category because we belong to other categories. So everybody is always multiply positioned. And what that means is that white women and black women, working class, middle class women are all uh, different as well as linked in the category woman. And because we're multiply positioned, that there are commonalities. And we have to think about the right to belong as being contingent. We have to think about claims to citizenship as being fractured and having commonalities uh, across women, as well as being di having differences to do with, for example, racialization, to do with um, uh, class, to do with sexuality, and so on. So we have to think about belongings in complicated ways. And women's suffrage marked a new beginning for women's struggles. It also meant that we need to think about temporary alliances because they're very good reasons why, for example, all women might stand together to get the vote and to get the, the age at suffrage lowered once it was first granted, but also the very act of giving the vote only to some women, those with property or husbands with property, fractures alliances. So we need to think about the alliances that we want to make. 
And it also means that we need to think about the psychosocial, that we need to think about what it means for people to belong, to be granted some rights or not. It's not just that it's material, but that, as you said, Sasha, that there are different forms of citizenship. So those all carry emotions as well as uh, psychological um, notions and material notions. It also means that the past haunts the present. So the histories of how women, for example, have been treated, the histories of their differences all haunt the past. Hauntology matters, uh, that, that um, Derrida uh, word. So that what we are carrying with us in the present, even if we don't know it, has an impact as well. And I'd, I'd just like to point out a few uh, issues that show differences in belonging. And one I'd like to think about is the Windrush and the fact that uh, in 2018, uh, Amelia Gentleman, who's a Guardian journalist, helped us to see just how the politics of belonging, something that, that Nira Yuval Davis writes about, really had fractured uh, many people who thought that they were just British citizens like everybody else. So that black people from the Caribbean suddenly found that if they did not have access to their migration papers, that they could be deported from Britain. And this was an intersectional struggle. Uh, it's not just all black people could be deported. Those who have their passports could not be. But it also showed how contingent was the belonging, that belonging was about politics. And it also shows that the right to suffrage, to citizenship, to the vote is very much contingent and across generations as well. It's not that it's won once and for all and that everything is then okay, but that, that it matters. So that black citizen, British citizens were evicted if they were unable to demonstrate citizenship. Having the citizenship was not enough. And even though the Windrush generation, those who uh, migrated to Britain between 1948 and 1971, are part of the national mythology. They were there, for example, represented in the British Olympics and so on. So the politics of, of belonging matters. So too does acts of citizenship. Uh, Sasha, you very nicely separated out all the different forms of citizenship we might think about, not just political. But I like Engin Eisen's notion that citizenship is also about acts. It's what you do, it's what you claim. And I want to give perhaps a, a surprising example, which is Jack Monroe, who is a non-binary person, often writing about food and um, po food poverty and publishing recipes and so on, but who in, nine, in 2017, I was really, really touched by and proud of when on her website, she had um, uh, an article, we need to talk about Diane Abbott now. And the reason that she did was pointing out that Diane Abbott was the MP who um, got most hate uh, mail posted on the internet and elsewhere, and every day so very much, and yet continue to stand up for constituents and for things that are right. And she says, uh, that, that she's doing this with love as a mother, a disabled person, a former food bank user, um, a, a, as well as being someone who is, is non-binary. The point about that is intersectionality shows us how we can be together working for the same things, uh, despite not apparently being in the same categories, but also that what Jack Monroe was doing ahead of many people talking about women who, um, uh, who get so much hate mail or black people who get so much hate mail when they are members of parliament is showing that claims to citizenship can move outside one's apparent boundaries, the, the, the boundaries of our own belonging and be contingent, be collaborative, be uh, form alliances and so on. And that those are claims to citizenship, not just for ourselves, but for others too. Another example I want to give is um, Jen Reed, who uh, in Bristol, after um, Colston, who, it, who was a, a slaveholder, after his um, statue had been toppled in a Black Lives Matter 
demonstration, stood on the plinth and raised her fist. Now, that's a really symbolic act of citizenship. She was later uh, made into a statue that was briefly up on that plinth. But the fact that she did that is a claim to citizenship in itself. It's an act of citizenship. And there are many ways in which many women have um, produced acts of citizenship in recent years that have been crucial for all of us. If you think about Laura Bates and, and the way that she has uh, got all of us to think about everyday sexism, not that we didn't think about it before, uh, Caroline Criado Perez and the way she, she looks at uh, how online um, women and offline women and men's bodies are treated differently and men's bodies are taken as the standard to the detriment of women in health, to the detriment of women online where they're not recognized so much and so on. Think about um, Safia uh, Noble on algorithms of oppression showing how um, algorithms racialize in a way that's racist. Um, or um, Somasara when she was an English student at UCL who set up Everyone's Invited where everybody can write about their, sex, their experiences of sexual harassment and so on. All of those are acts of uh, citizenship. And I want to finish by thinking about hope, because we're here uh, partly to think about hope and celebrate hope coming to um, UCL and what it symbolizes to have these 32,000 pieces of Lego built together. And I want to um, think about theorizing of hope. Hope is very much something that is future oriented, but rooted in the past, as Les Back suggests. So that it is uh, that we're haunted by the past, but we wouldn't hope if we didn't want to make claims to citizenship into the future, if we didn't have a vision that we wanted to achieve. So it's impossible without imagination. It's impossible without having narratives, making untold stories into told stories, which, for example, Black Lives Matter has helped us to do, which feminism in itself, through popularizing, consciousness raising, really helped us to see. And that, that, that was second wave feminism, crucial for that. But also hope as collective and collaborative work. And um, as Hassan Haj says, um, we need not just to think about politics of redistribution and recognition, but co-hoping. And, and um, uh, what, what is meant by that is thinking about hope as being something that is, is uh, that we share with other people. We don't hope at other people's expense, but we think collaboratively about what it means to hope. And I hope in this conversation that we can think some more about how um, hope is interlinked with intersectional inequalities, how it's potentially contradictory, but that if we co-hope, if we really have de developed future visions together, it can be enormously helpful. Thank you. Thank you very much, Anne. Um, the conjuring so many acts of citizenship, um, small and large, um, that, that many of us have heard about, and it's really good to be reminded of. And I particularly love the notion of co-hoping, um, and maybe that is part of what we're doing today. Um, our next speaker is Joyce. Thanks so much, Sasha. So it's a real pleasure to be speaking to you today. And I'm going to give you a very different angle. So I want to talk to you about how assisted reproductive technology, which mainly involves in vitro fertilization or IVF for short, can influence reproductive citizenship. And I've been working in this field for over 30 years. After I finished my PhD, I became a clinical embryologist in one of the UK's busiest IVF units. So I was the person in the lab that dealt with the eggs and the sperm and the embryos. So I've seen how this field has developed over that time, and I'm very aware of what we might have developed in the next 30 years. Now, IVF and fertility treatment has helped millions of women have children, including myself. I actually have three IVF children. And fertility treatment is considered a highly controversial area among, amongst feminist activists and scholars. On the one hand, it helps infertile women get pregnant, but on the other hand, it can be considered a potential threat to female reproductive autonomy, as it has been considered to work against the interests of women. Radical feminists emphasize the control of women's reproductive roles by men, as they feel that the fertility field has been male dominated. And historically, women's narratives have not been considered. 
we have to realize that not all women want to become a mother. And we, we found in the latest data that's just come out from the Office of National Statistics that 18% of women past their reproductive age in the UK are, are not mothers. But motherhood has led to the role which society assigns to women being a mother. Pregnancy is the one thing that a woman can do that a man can't. But whether we're trying to get pregnant or avoid a pregnancy, we need to consider a woman's fertile years. And there's two key parts of a woman's fertility, which is her eggs and her womb. So what I want to do is talk about both briefly, talk about what the technology can offer us now and where this might go in the future. Now, the egg is really pivotal to female fertility. It's the quality and quantity of the egg that will determine whether a woman will get pregnant or not, or certainly the main factor. But unfortunately, women have a fertility lifespan. So from puberty to the menopause, our fertility decreases. We're most fertile in our adolescence. And by the time we're in our 40s, we're infertile. And this is not the case for men. The majority of men will stay fertile from puberty till the day they die. And this fertility, as I've said, is, is mainly due to the quality and quantity of our eggs. And so we have the technology now of egg freezing. So this is a, a new technology that's been around now for about 15 years that gives women the option to put our eggs on hold um, when they're younger and more fertile. So we could get pregnant when we're uh, later in years, maybe past our, our natural fertility. So is it the answer? Well, it is a very expensive technique. It's no guarantee of having a baby. But I want to point out one thing to you, which I think really is relevant to today's conversation. And this is the regulations that we have in the UK. So men can freeze their sperm and the majority of men that are freezing their sperm are men who have already had their children and they're considering undergoing a vasectomy. So they're freezing their sperm as a backup in case they change their minds. The UK government decided that men who freeze their sperm for this reason can freeze it for up to 55 years. But women who freeze their eggs because they, most women who are freezing their eggs in the UK are ready to become a parent, but they haven't got a partner or haven't got a willing partner. So they can't actually um, get pregnant naturally. So that's why most women are freezing their eggs. But the UK government decided we can only freeze our eggs for 10 years. So this is something that we've been fighting for, uh, for about 10 years. We do hope that now it's finally going to get changed this year. But why? Why were women who are in a very different situation to men given a 10 year time limit? So we've already had some women that had frozen their eggs and had to discard them because their time limit was up. And it really worries me where we're going with egg freezing. There's, there's egg freezing parties. There's lots of uh, glamorous ways that they are marketing egg freezing to a basically fertile population. And I run something called the International Fertility Education Initiative, and we're trying to prevent people ending up in the fertility unit. But with egg freezing, we're pushing a fertile population to medicalize their reproduction. And it really does um, give me cause for concern. I feel very uncomfortable that we are already seeing, um, certainly in the US, where at graduation, we're pushing women to the, to the fertility unit to have their eggs frozen. And I don't think that's the way we should be going. And in the future, well, what's bubbling under is the potential to make eggs from stem cells. And if this did happen, it would certainly allow women to be free of our restrictive reproductive years. But are these technologies empowerment or exploitation? And I want to now talk about the womb. So we have a womb, men don't have a womb, we carry the baby. But what we're finding now is a growing number of celebrities who are using a surrogate to carry their baby because they do not want to carry it themselves. And it really gives you the feel of the handmaid's tale. And it makes me feel, again, very uncomfortable. And bubbling under in the future, well, people are looking at making an artificial womb. So how will we feel if we take away our contribution to making a baby? Some women feel that this is a woman's source of power. I really feel that we would be entering a brave new world. Again, is this empowerment or exploitation? But today it's about hope. And I wanted to finish with some thoughts about hope. 
I want to stress that actually the embryology field that I started working in back in 1987 is incredibly female dominated. Well, worldwide, the vast majority of embryologists are female. I have been to conferences where over 90% of the audience have been women. So um, we have a huge imbalance there, the opposite way to some other areas. And indeed, I run several, or I used to run several master's, master's courses in our Institute for Women's Health. And we find that we have very few men, just a handful of men every year coming onto our, our MSc programs that are all related to women's health and reproductive science. One year, we actually had no men at all. We've been doing a lot of work on that. We, I must admit that we haven't had a huge number of uh, clinicians involved in fertility treatment uh, being women. It has improved since the 80s, for sure. It was certainly a very male-dominated clinical field, but now we have seen some IVF uh, units in the, in the UK that are uh, directed by women, and there's certainly been an increase in female gynecologists. And lastly, I'm really pleased that there is now a growing body of research, including my own, who are listening to women's voices about how they want us to look after their fertile years. So I think we do have hope, but I think there's lots of conversations here around reproductive citizenship that we really need to debate and think very carefully of where the future takes us. I am a little nervous of how we will have children in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Joyce, for some very um, challenging ideas there and um, pushing the boundaries in thinking about citizenship to think about, about reproductive citizenship and, um, and about questions of autonomy and agency um, that I think have been so crucial around feminist struggles uh, in relation to citizenship. So thank you. Um, Victoria, over to you next. Thank you very much. So um, thank you for listening. You know, when I'm thinking about Joyce and Anne, what you've just said, and also you, Natasha, as, uh, Sasha as well. Um, so I'm really going to speak about a kind of collection of things, really. So I've said, you know, looking back and looking forward and unfinished business from, you know, securing full membership and belonging to society and its institutions for all women. That was the title which we were kind of working with. And uh, so looking back and looking forward, so the concept of identity, gender, race and um, class lies in the heart of my research. And I focus on the experience of black women and girls at school, college, and also um, the workplace. Looking at the perspectives of black women, I would still argue that they're, they're still struggling to achieve the same rights as white women. There's a lot of unfinished business for black women. I'm gonna come on to the types of things which um, form part of the discussion. Black women are, are excluded from white feminist space. It's a constant struggle to get their voices heard. They're not considered sufficiently feminine. If you're part of or engage with social media, whether that's Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, any of those, you'll see that this exclusion of feminist space, white feminist space, where young black women, young black girls have developed their own aspect of feminism, where they feel that they don't need to have this struggle. They're also not considered sufficiently feminine, whether it's to do with the way they look, physiology, or whether it's the way they actually are and the way their attributes are. And that in itself has got um, a conversation in its, um, to explore. They're seen as too loud, not assertive, but aggressive. So you're really grappling with various stereotypes and that can come from white women and other women of color and also other sexes as well who buy into these different um, stereotypes. They therefore focus on their appearance in an effort to be accepted. For example, their hair. Now, many of you would have seen and heard about the long-term conversations about hair and how it should be or shouldn't be within school or the workplace or within society and what that means. 
The notion of not being able to secure full membership of society is real to black women. It's an emotional burden and a source of stress and racial trauma. Since 1992, data collected on gender was broken down according to race and gender. Yet, we have to ask ourselves, why is it that we are still struggling to gather sufficient data on the experiences of black women? We still have those conversations. Well, you know, it's not quite enough. We can't, the numbers are too small to be able to get a representation to be able to have action to what needs to be done. A recent example in, in, the, in the figures is the figures on pregnancy and complications and child mortality. Mental health figures are also difficult to access. Hidden figures for black women is something which we're starting to call it really. Within the research gender itself, there's more to be done. It's just not there. Um, research on black women and black girls, there is some there, but are not enough. And we need to do more to be able to um, understand what is going on. Unfinished business on health, employment, recognition, and acceptance. And of course, the recent report, which came out from the NHS just this week, which was kind of hidden, but has emerged, um, is very, very stark in itself when you're looking at the findings on how people are being treated within the NHS across all of those things I've just mentioned. Facing the concrete ceiling, not even the glass ceiling, is something again that black women face as an additional challenge in the workplace. Let's move on to something else which um, many women will feel that we've, you know, we can celebrate in some ways, which is the gender pay gap. Well, that is a celebration for some women. But if we look at the gender pay gap and we then consider women of color, particularly black women, black women along with women which are Bangladesh are at the bottom of the pay gap. Now you ask yourself, why is that? Well, of course you've got the gender pay gap which people associate with white women. And then you've got the ethnic pay gap, which of course is then looking at in particular black men or other men, i.e. Indian men, men from other Asian backgrounds. And so the battle for black women is you fall down the crack itself. And so you don't fit either way and your wages are at the bottom. A couple of more things before I actually uh, complete and finish. I smiled when Anne mentioned um, Diane Abbott, because one of the points I was going to raise here, which is, you know, the different forms of citizenship and what that means as well, and belonging is really um, context specific, I would say as well, whether that's to do with education and how one positions themselves as a young person in an educational space and how they belong. And, and that is a real discussion a discussion point or the workplace and Diane Abbott came to my mind about that as well and she's been there in as a MP for what 28 29 years and even so she is still that person which is demonized for what she's actually who she actually stands for as a person a couple more points really on average black women are paid 63 percent less of a white male. That's a huge amount. And on average, it could take 19 months to be paid what an average white man takes in 12 months, home in 12 months. That's even worse than the national earnings ratio for all women. So what is hopeful? What is actual hopeful when we, when we think of this? Even having the conversation is a reason of, for hope. Just having that conversation the critical conversation and what that means. Perhaps, but it's a difficult conversation for black women. And it's difficult for them to feel that hope is on its way when there's so many things stacked up against them. So when I stood next to hope yesterday and, and thought about, so what does this mean when I'm standing next to hope, who appears to be more of a, um, 
Western concept of hope. It didn't seem to be something which was um, white, uh, a black. Um, I still stand and I say, well, still I rise because even though I've given you a kind of a stark aspects of um, various statistics and um, comments about black women and some about black girls, we still rise and we still are moving forward. So we look back and look, move forward to things ahead. We do what we can because we're always looking ahead. So I'll stop there and hopefully that adds to the conversation. Thank you very much, Victoria. I think you have um, really enabled us to reflect on um, the whole question of agency um, and um, what it means to have um, to have a figure um, from history um, in our in our midst in the in the um, student centre who's speaking of or, or taking us back to a particular moment in history um, when actually there is so much still to be done to achieve um, the, the vision that there was there for the suffragettes of full equality for women. You know, we are nowhere near that. And I think you've really pointed to that very clearly. Um, I was really, um, I was struck actually in all the, the talks by um, the, a kind of reflection on um, the extent to which um, the agency that the suffragettes were exerting in the world, um, the, the kind of claims they were making for space in the public sphere, um, for, for a place for women to, to speak out and to be represented in politics, um, how in many ways that has been achieved. I mean, we're here talking uh, publicly about all these issues um, and, and we have, you know, feminism has fundamentally changed the terms of, of the debate over the last hundred years. Um, and um, that there are new issues on the agenda that weren't being talked about by the suffrage movement a um, hundred years ago. Um, but, but there is much still to be done. Um, and uh, if I wonder if some of those uh, those suffragettes were here today, what they would think about where we are now, um, whether they would recognise the inequalities that that everyone's been speaking of as actually ones that yeah they, they knew they were there, or whether they didn't. Um, there's a number of questions coming up in the chat, and and I would ask anyone who wants to ask a question of our panelists to please post them in the chat. I'm gonna I'm gonna take uh, take some of them and and put them to you all. Um, our panelists. Um, the first one um, is from Nina and she says, thanks for the really interesting presentations. Um, given the points made about the need for more representation of women in political debate um, in different spheres of citizenship, what would you suggest would be the way to approach improving diversity of the policy landscape? Um, and I think you could answer this from your own different perspectives, um, you know, whether it's about, um, you know, black, black women in, in education, for instance, uh, Victoria, uh, about uh, the policy landscape in relation to reproduction, Joyce, um, and any, any thoughts you might have um, from your perspective. So we, 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 we're, we're improving in the representation of women, um, but it's been slow and it's still not at 50%. We're still not at parity. Um, Given that, what, what could be done um, to make policy making um, more representative of women's interests? Any thoughts about that? Anne. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think it's a really interesting question because um, in order for there to be more representation of women generally in the political sphere, we need representation at all levels of society. So if we think of, of um, society as always psychosocial, as well as our lives as always psychosocial, nested within the huge political are the institutions to which we belong and our, our, our everyday lives, whatever those consist of. And therefore it should be that in, in every institution, we make claims to um, uh, representation in more equal ways. So I think, that there is no point simply fighting to get, for example, more women um, or more black women or Asian women into um, the House of Commons without actually thinking about 
um, what that means for the everyday lives of people. Because of course, an intersectional view lets you see that um, simply having women in parliament doesn't mean that particular agenda are followed. It depends who they are and what their commitments are. So I think that it has to be simultaneously at different levels if we're going to have representation. So we need to be thinking about this at UCL, as I know uh, various people are, as well as in schools, as well as thinking about um, households and um, uh, you know, how lives are lived in the different forms of households and different forms of families that people live and thinking about equality there. So the point that I'd like to make is that claims to citizenship are important. It is important to um, continue to fight for equalities at whatever level, it all matters a great deal. Yeah, I think, and I, I would agree. I mean, that's why we were really interested in the FEMSIT project in the different dimensions of citizenship. So, you know, we started from the point of view that political citizenship was important, but it was by no means going to deliver full equality, full membership of society for women, um, and especially for women in all their diversity, and that we needed to tackle, you know, questions of inequality and intimate citizenship, the recognition of different forms of intimate life, for instance, that we needed to tackle economic citizenship and women's exclusion from um, being able to earn, earn enough money to live on um, as an independent uh, person in the world. Uh, we need to, to think about research, um, look at um, reproductive citizenship, sexual citizenship, how, how women's bodies are controlled and the extent to which women have control over their bodies as this kind of fundamental uh, to being able to be a political actor or an economic actor. So the sort of um, the intersections of all those dimensions of citizenship seem to me to be really important in um, struggles for, for kind of more diverse policymaking. Um, you're not going to get it if women uh, can't go out into the policymaking landscape because they have all the responsibility for looking after the children, for instance. Um, and, and just to add to that, um... You mentioned at the beginning that the second wave feminist um, slogan, the personal is political. And um, a lot of people derided that because, you know, it seemed to be too micro or whatever. But the personal is political and the political is personal and always has been They're intricately interlinked. And so what you're saying is absolutely right. I mean, that's one of the great benefits of um, uh, focusing on FEMSIT, for example. Victoria, do you want to come in? Just, just very quickly, because I'm also conscious that you want to get a few more questions in. I mean, I'm, I'm quite practical in, in this particular area, and I think that there does need to be, we do need to think about um, safe spaces, safe spaces that, so if we do look at selection, um, recruitment and retainment, for example, and we are looking at wanting to bring people into an organisation, say, for example, um, our organisation is with um, UCL, um, we need to also ensure that there are spaces, safe spaces where people can be themselves and speak about things which perhaps are um, rather controversial. And at the same time, when it comes to policy, we do need to be brave enough to carry out um, equality impact assessments and really look at and, uh, and assess what the policies are, what we're doing, and how that in itself will increase representation across the board. Good points indeed, thank you. Um, there's been some chat, uh, uh, some Q&As, which Joyce I think has been answering in the box, um, but I'm gonna pick up on um, some issues that I think are addressed to you, Joyce, uh, here, which are about uh, childlessness and um, uh, figures being cited, 50% uh, of women are now childless after their fertile years. How does that compare with historic childlessness? Um, and if we go back to perhaps thinking about the beginning of the 20th century and the suffragettes um, who are our kind of point of departure today. I mean, how has how has childlessness changed? And, and maybe, you know, also how has the meaning of it changed? Um, and, you know, are are childless women actually full citizens in our society? You know, or are they somehow seen as as less than full citizens? I have been doing some work on, on childlessness and, and published a few papers on this. Um, so it's, a, it's actually the latest data from the Office of National Statistics is that 18% of women past their reproductive age um, are childless. Now, some of these will actually absolutely be by choice. 
Um, we, you know, women a hundred years ago didn't have a choice. Um, they didn't have contraception. Um, they didn't have the, the choices that women have nowadays. So I think that's one really positive thing that, that we are able to do. Um, but women globally are also pushing back the boundaries. We're having children much later. So the, the latest data from the Office of National Statistics for the UK says that for the first time, <coughs> it's 50% of women in their, uh, who are age 30 are, are, are childless at the moment. So that's the first time it's ever been that high. So whether women are um, choosing, I mean, I'm just finishing a paper actually about a, a survey um, we've asked women how they feel, their attitudes and their behaviour around their fertility if they want children. And most women do want children about the age of 30. Um, but it's around the age of 30 that, that fertility will, will start to decline. And by, the, by our mid-30s, it, will, uh, it, it does become increasingly difficult to get pregnant. So what we are seeing every year, year in, year out globally, women delaying having their ch ch children for whatever reason, um, and that age of having their first child going up and the average age of having children going up. So that's very, very different. I'm sure we're all aware that, you know, 20, 30 years ago, people would mainly have children in their mid-20s. Now it's 30. In some countries, it's 32. And the, the question I answered was about um, some countries encouraging and, and, and maybe even punishing people about having children, wanting their population to have more children. And this is because the total fertility rate globally has gone down. So in the 50s, it was uh, around five. So that meant on average, uh, women had five children um, in their lifetime. Now globally, it's around 2.5. And in some EU countries, it's 1.3. So that means on average, women are only having just over one child. When I was young, it used to be 2.4. Um, and China reversed their one child policy because it didn't make political and economic sense to uh, for two people to have one child. So that 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 will lead to so many huge uh, issues um, around, especially the economy of countries. But, you know, we do we do have a growing population, but we think that that is going to really uh, become slow. And can I just very briefly answer the, the next question about uh, race? Um, and class, there is absolutely loads of work around this. Uh, we hosted for last year's International Women's Day, um, an event called Race and Reproduction. And uh, women of different races have uh, really many issues around reproduction. Uh, black women are more at risk of having uh, pregnancy problems, um, having maternal mortality, even in the UK and the USA, uh, which is obviously totally unacceptable. Um, so there is a lot of work that needs to be done around this. Um, it's much harder to access fertility treatment if you don't have money. In the UK, it's incredibly expensive. So it is absolutely a, a treatment for the middle classes. And we, we've said repeatedly, the white middle classes. Um, if you want to see that uh, video, we've got we've recorded that discussion, uh, race and reproduction. It's, 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 um, it's on my YouTube channel. Um, but it, it was a really powerful discussion of different women and the issues that they've had uh, regarding their race and their reproduction. Great, thank you, Joyce. Um, one, one thing that we found in the FEMSIT research that we did, which was kind of cross-national research in Europe, was that um, the stronger the policies there were to support um, women having children um, and the stronger the social policy kind of infrastructure, um, the stronger the childcare support, um, the stronger the benefits support, social benefits support, the more children women were having and that women were having fewer children in places where they were left, you know, by themselves to deal with the consequences of having children. Um, so the social democratic welfare states saw higher numbers of women having children um, than the, the more neoliberal um, and, and particularly the post-socialist states where the, um, the infrastructure was, was disappearing to support women who were having children. Um, so there's something I think very important about the social policy infrastructure that supports reproductive citizenship and enables women to, to really make choices about whether they have children or not, um, knowing that there is some social support for, for their choices. Um, Victoria, did you want to? Oh, I can see Victoria and Anne both wanting to come back in. Uh, Victoria, you had your hand up first then, Anne. Yeah, um, just, just something else really just to further spanner in the world and just, um, I was just checking the questions. But um, I, I wondered also, one of the things we haven't mentioned, but I think is really important is 
you asked a question earlier, Sasha, about, you know, what do we think Hope or one of the suffragettes would have thought about if they, if they were sitting with us now? I think there'd be disappointment about um, the, what's the surge around domestic violence and what's happening with that. Also, this, this kind of challenges we're having with um, collecting data and um, really charging people around rape and the date rape and, and how that's coming part, is, is part of society and the belief of trying for people not to um, believe that women are coming forward, coming, more for, coming, up, coming forward more often about their experiences of rape, but at the same time not being believed and charges, you know, not being charged, the perpetrators not being charged. So I think that's also something which um, doesn't sit very well when you're thinking one step you're going forward, but at the same time, people don't want to believe that um, these things are really happening um, to women. I, I'd really agree because the campaigns around sexual violence, around um, violence against women, were, were really tied up with the campaign for the vote too. The, the feminists who were campaigning for the vote were also very often campaigning against violence against women and that they saw getting the vote and getting political citizenship as being important to try and tackle the violence they were experiencing in the home. But, but you're absolutely right. It, you know, one thing hasn't led to the other. Um, and did you want to come in? Um, I was merely going to uh, support what you said about um, it matters how children are, what both how children are thought of in particular societies and how women are treated in terms of um, being able to get on with their lives once they have children. So it's no surprise that in Nordic countries, so many people have children um, uh, relatively early um, and I'm not saying early, but relatively early and that you know, some people have three and still manage to continue with their, their work and so on, um, because children are part of the society. They're looked after, um, you know, and it really matters. So I just wanted to emphasize that. In Finland, for example, the baby box means that everybody gets provided for the first six months with the things that, that babies will need. And it's not low status. Everybody wants to have that, that baby box. It matters. Money, childcare, they're all provided. The flip side of that is that there are societies where some um, uh, babies are valued. I don't mean that they're cared for by society, but they're more valued than others. So in the United States as well, there's a lot of work on the fact that black women have over, over hundreds of years actually um, had their reproduction at the service of those who are more powerful. So when they're, they're enslaved, um, uh, being expected to bear children when it becomes less economic to bring uh, enslaved peoples over, but also been sterilized a great deal. And there's a lot of research that shows that, you know, without their consent, they're much more likely to be sterilized and so on. Never mind the intersections that you were talking about, Joyce, in terms of um, needing money in order to be able to freeze your eggs, etc. So we have to take an intersectional view and uh, recognize that it's not an individual decision, although it's so frequently individualized, but so much more rides on it. Thanks, Anne. Um, there are lots of questions and we're not gonna get through them all, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask one that Catherine has posed um, in the Q&A box, um, which I suppose is, is taking a different, a different kind of uh, angle on all this. Um, she says, many women I know have found the strength to find their own inner sense of belonging. Do you feel this is something that's evolving as a mechanism to bypass the patriarchy and the hauntings of the past? Um, so I think this is an opportunity to just reflect on, on what belonging does mean um, to women today. Um, you know, if, if part of what Hope and her um, fellow suffragettes were campaigning for was women to be able to, to feel a full sense of belonging in society, um, how far have we gone along those road, uh, along that road? And and you know what are what are the mechanisms to use in the absence of, of full and equal citizenship? How how do we find a sense of belonging? I wonder if any of you have any thoughts about that. I can I can say a few. So um I, I have an amazing sense of belonging. I, I am very much an optimist, and I, I feel that um to really think about hope, I, I think that we are, I know we've got a long way to go. I absolutely appreciate that, but I think we are in, in an amazing position, um, women are in an amazing position in life compared to 100 years ago. Um, and for me, it's my community. 
So um, I run a women's group. I, I, I open water swim, as Sasha knows, as Sasha does as well. Um, and and with, within, and I've many other communities. And I think within those communities, I think you, you can find strength and you can find that strength uh, of belonging. Um, and I really in, always try to encourage women. My social media um, feeds a lot about, a lot of it is, is about women's well-being and positivity. And uh, I, I think that's what, that's the way we, we need to move forward, not to dwell about the hauntings of the past, but to think about our strength, our belonging, how we can move forward and our sense of community. And I, I'd like to jump in there as well, actually. I mean, I, I really do um, think it is about, um, I, I would actually look at my inner strength and, 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 and how that moves you forward um, and how it's moved me forward. And, but I, at the same time, now this isn't a negative, it's having an honest conversation because what I'm also very um, conscious of is the emotional burden that young black girls and black women as they try to um, also continue with the inner strength and the strength going forward. But there's a lot, that they, there's a lot, and they may not be, they may not be able to tap into such strength. And I, and I think that is something we have to acknowledge because otherwise we, we reproduce this group of people which don't show their emotions, that resilience is part of what it is to be um, a, a woman of color and what that does for one's mental health and um, trying to also um, be, you know, kind of be part of um, a society. And I was just reading just this morning about the numbers of black women which have decided to stop being part of an employment organization or an organization which is just so aggressive towards them and set up their own business. 50% since the pandemic have decided that we're going to set up our own businesses. So that is in some ways also part of the fact of, yeah, we're going to do something ourselves, which is very different, but we're not going to keep beating our heads against a situation of employment. And, and many, we have to acknowledge that many don't, don't, aren't at a university and, and, and many are in organizations which are not as pleasant. I'm not saying the university we're at is the best in the world, but I'm saying that is important. So even though myself, yes, um, I've got different groups around me and I've got people I can tap into and I tap into myself and my own spiritual spot, part, but we have to acknowledge they're having an honest conversation about, so what's happening to those women outside of that? Because in this room, just us, it's a very middle-class group of people. It's a very, very, very middle-class group of people. But what about the people which aren't so, you know, part of that? And how do they get their strength when they've got the bills and everything else which they've got to pay for and all of this stuff? And I think that's an important question, which sometimes we forget to even think about when we're looking at women's um, positivity and, and how, we're, how we're actually moving forward um, in society. We're going to have to finish there. And, and if, it's, if it's 10 seconds, please have the floor. Simply to say that it's multi-level, that it has to be intersectional. If you're hungry, as many people in Britain now are, you cannot have this inner sense of belonging, but you can be very centered, but still recognize that there's racism as a black woman, for example, and that that. So in different contexts, you can find sustenance just as Joyce said, the different groups to which one belongs. And I, I um, am really grateful that I, I grew up in a time of feminist consciousness raising, belonging to a consciousness raising group, black um, uh, movements where I belong to uh, black uh, groups and so on, because those do give you sustenance and a sense of self. So the politics of uh, belonging is multifaceted. Sorry, that was longer than you wanted. <laughs> I, I want more. Um, we, we're up against our deadline. I think it's, I mean, it's actually such a good point to end on because one of the things that I was very struck by when I went to look at Hope was she is made out of Lego bricks. Um, and so there is, um, whilst it's an amazing construction, there is something not alive about her. And what, what you've done, all of you, um, is, is, you know, you've brought the emotion into this discussion about citizenship, about the unfinished business of the struggle for citizenship. You've brought us in, in touch with the emotional elements of that, the multidimensional, intersectional dimensions 
of the struggle for citizenship. And I think we have provoked some interesting discussions, which was the point of having hope here. So thank you very much to the panel. Thank you for everyone who's asked a question. Sorry to everyone who's asked a question that hasn't been able to be answered. I hope we've provoked some thinking for you all. And I just want to finish by thanking colleagues in uh, UCL's Grand Challenge of Justice and Equality and UCL Public Policy, especially Siobhan Morris, Olivia Stevenson and Evie Calder for organising this event. Thank you all for coming and have a good evening, everyone. Thank you.